0: If you'll turn with me in your copy of God's word to Romans chapter twelve. Romans chapter twelve. If you read reading the whole chapter this morning, so turn your attention to God's holy word. I appeal to you therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. So we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members one of another, having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us. Let us use them. If prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. Let love be genuine. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God abides forever. Let's pray. Father, we do give you thanks for this word this morning, and we ask that you would guide and strengthen me as I proclaim it. Lord, I ask that you would Unite my heart to fear your name as you unite all of our hearts to fear your name. Fill me, fill this place for your glory, Lord, for our good and joy. In Christ's name, amen. Backbiting, bitterness, resentment, gossip, arguments over petty things, disengaging because something was done that you didn't like or not enough was done around something you think is essential it sounds like politics or maybe you know extended family yet too often these words are true and very descriptive of the church i've been in full time of ministry of some sort since 1995 heavily involved in the church, and I've seen too much of this type of interaction. I've heard stories that made my eyes roll farther back in my head than I thought was humanly possible, like carpet color being the deciding factor for why someone left a church. In my own experience, uh, when someone might bring a coffee mug, travel mug nonetheless, into the sanctuary of the church I served, the next day as pastor, I might well get a visitation in my office. I also just heard of someone who left their church that they'd been at for years because they visited a megachurch. And in the hallway of the children's wing, there was a um, vending machine that gave out free king size candy bars. And the people's response to their pastor that they left was free king size candy bars, who can pass that up? Now, there's a lot of issues with that one, but that I don't really want to touch. And then, you know, further, if I want to deal with the elephant in the room, and I I don't necessarily, and I tread lightly here, if you haven't noticed, there's this thing called COVID that can be fairly divisive. And then you add to that the politics of the day. There's ads already running for an election two years from now. You add to that the politics of the day, and it's been a bit of a powder keg in the church in general. And it all makes me sad as a pastor. And just as a Christian, this is not what is supposed to mark Christian interaction. We are not to operate like the world. We are to be different. We are to stand out. Too much have we been influenced by the ways of this world. So what are we to look like? How are we to be different? As we continue in our series on the church and re-engaging in the life of the church, this is what we're going to look at this morning the life of the believer, the life in fellowship in a sense, and, and in community, and in the world as well. And, and there's numerous ways I could have gone dealing with fellowship. I could have looked at one another passages, but I just thought that this broad overview that Paul goes through in Romans 12 is really helpful. And he addresses, he addresses so much of this. It's, it's not exhaustive in how one is to live, but it certainly gives us plenty to consider. You've already heard it read through Gives us plenty to consider and plenty to to pray that the Holy Spirit would work the image of Christ more and more into each of our lives. And as we look at this chapter, I'm going to frame it in three sections live by mercy, live by love, and live by faith. So, live by mercy, by love, and by faith. So, this chapter is Paul's first in his grand letter here that focuses on instruction rather than doctrine. And that focus comes at this point very intentionally because our living is grounded in what is done for us by Christ. We live rightly because of the truths of the gospel. We don't live these things to try and be the gospel because we can't. And we have to remember that because, honestly, folks, the amount of exhortation that we're going to get in these 21 verses can be a bit overwhelming. So that's why Paul begins in this way, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. You see, he urges readers, he implores them that in light of all that he has just laid out in the first 11 chapters so meticulously that they would respond properly to that mercy of God by giving themselves. See, Paul knows that until men and women grasp the grandeur of the gospel and how much they are sustained by the mercy of God moment by moment, they will be unable to worship him rightly or obey him out of a proper motive and heart. As Calvin said, Paul allures us by the sweetness of that favor by which our salvation is affected. He calls us to live rightly by the sweetness of what has been done for us. and So we're to be living sacrifices, giving ourselves for the glory of God and for the good of His people. And to do that, we cannot, we must not be conformed to this world being fashioned and molded and formed, and the ways of the world is off-limits. Think of how the world is described. It's described as the, the, the world is darkened in their understanding, Ephesians 4. The world does not seek to honor God, but suppresses the truth of God in unrighteousness. That's how Paul starts off the whole letter to the Romans. And as believers, we're called to live our lives for the glory of God. And the system of the world will not applaud us in that endeavor, nor will they aid us therefore our minds need to be transformed. We must shun the pattern of this world, shun it, what we see and hear in the public square, and and just imagine what goes on behind closed doors with what we actually are seeing in the public square today, because that's them putting on their good face. This is not something we are to imitate We shun it so that we can be rather transformed. And listen, this transformation is not merely… or it's it's not the same as outward conformity. Transformation is inward. This is a renewing of the mind, of the heart. It is a continual and active process. We work towards it. Philippians 2, 12 and 13, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for His good pleasure. See, we work because God is at work, and God has worked in us. And, and so, so maybe a question is, how will that transformation start to come about? Well, it's by taking advantage of His means of grace, God's Word, Prayer, worship, fellowship, His, his Spirit working, uh, others, other people in your lives giving input and correction and encouragement. And then we will discern the will of God. As we are transformed, we will see the goodness of God's will. One commentator wrote, in this way, the will of God will become an increasingly well-established or proven component of the consciousness and lives of God's children. The more they live in accordance with that will and approve of it, the more also through this experience will they learn to know that will and rejoice in that knowledge. They will exclaim, Thy will is our delight. Let's pray that His will would be more and more of a delight in our our hearts, in our lives, that when we taste of anything else, we don't want it. We want His will. So, folks, this is the foundation for what Paul is about to exhort the believers unto, because the Christian life is all of life. The Christian life is not a few hours on Sunday, maybe a Wednesday evening thing or during the day or something like that. It's all of life. So, we must see how we are called to be and live different from this world. So, starting in verse 3, we begin to see this come out clearly. And in the next 14 verses, the overriding idea is to live by love. Now, in verses 3 to 6, Paul does not explicitly state this, but I think it's fairly evident that love for God and love for neighbor still drives what he says. So look at verse 3. For by the grace, of God, for by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. Paul is giving this command as an apostle by the grace of God that has been given to him, and he addresses everyone, okay? So, no one in this room or online can shut out this exhortation. He addresses absolutely everyone. No member of the church is exempt, and the call is this, assess yourself rightly, It's a call to be sober-minded, sensible about who we are and the gifts that God has given to us. R.C. Sproul wrote this. He said, A sober judgment means to make a sober evaluation of our gifts, our our strengths, our weaknesses. To think of ourselves in terms of sober judgment is very difficult to do because we have a tendency to see ourselves through rose-colored glasses for five minutes and then put down the rose-colored glasses and put on jaundiced eyes. We go back and forth from seeing ourselves beautifully to sick. We need to have a realistic assessment of ourselves according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. Now, that's not honestly the most clear statement Paul has ever made. What does Paul mean by that? Well, one thing that we know is that the gifts that we have, they've been given to us by the Lord. They've been received from Him. 1 Corinthians 4, 7 Paul wrote, for who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? You see, we've received everything. We've received it all. And in light of that truth, I believe Paul is teaching that we have all been given gifts, all of us. Every believer has been assigned a gift from the Lord for the benefit of the body. You could look at 1 Corinthians 12 or Ephesians 4. And listen, they're different. We do not all have the same passions or motivated uh, desires, motivated skills, which I think in some ways is, is a way of looking at our gifting. And listen, that's a good thing. It's a good thing. And if we can see this rightly, that we've all been given a gift in the Lord's wisdom, It's going to not only lead to unity, but to health in the body of Christ as we all serve in that lane in which God has called us, and we all participate in the full life of the church. So we serve where we're gifted and all participate in the whole life of the church. So with that being said, you've been gifted by our Lord. Are you using what God has in His wisdom given to you? Are you using what God has in His wisdom, not in, in somebody else's, not in some gift assessment or whatever, in His wisdom, what He has given to you? Okay, from that point, we come to the unmistakable call of love in verses 9 through 16. And Paul here, as John Stott pointed out, adds ingredient upon ingredient to his recipe for what makes Christian love. And Stott broke this down into 12 components. I, I borrowed much of that and whittled it down a little bit more to 10. So we're going to go through 10 components here. So the first thing is sincere. Love is sincere. Let love be genuine. Let it be without hypocrisy. We, folks, don't pretend to love others, okay? Okay? We had, I saw one guy wrote about this. He said, people, especially early on in the COVID debate, he's like, people are complaining about masks, but you've all been wearing masks to church for years. Right? Too many of us have pretended, and we've hidden behind masks, and yet we were so mad about having to put one on. We're actually to love each other. The church must not be a stage where we work to move ourselves up the ladder of notoriety, but it must be a garden where sincere love is nourished and it flourishes. There is no sense in which the pretentious love of the kind that Judas displayed to Christ when he kissed him and betrayed him is to be anywhere in the church. So love is to be sincere. Second, it's to be discerning. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love is not naive. It's not blind. That's the the next statement. Love is not blind sentiment. It is traditionally said to be. On the contrary, it is discerning. It is so passionately devoted to the beloved object that it hates every evil which is incompatible with his or her highest welfare. Folks, if there's evil, it will hurt others and it will hurt us. We should abhor it. We should detest it. We should hate it. And we should cling and hold fast to what is good. Shove off and hold on to. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. So love is discerning. Third, it's affectionate. Verse 10, love one another with brotherly affection. Listen, I think y'all can figure this out, but the church is made up of people who are quite different from one another, okay? We are not all folks who would naturally gravitate toward one another. If it weren't for the church, I'm not sure I would know any of you. It's a big area. I probably would not know any of you, and I would be the worse off for it. But yet we're family. Peter wrote in 1 Peter 1, Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth, for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart, since you've been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding Word of God. And one thing I want you to notice notice the consistency there with Peter, with what grounds our love? It's because we've been born again. Our love flows out of what has happened to us. We can love the brethren. Fourth, love is honoring. Outdo one another in showing honor. I could probably just go on from there, but we are to give preference to others, not to ourselves. We are not to backbite and tear down, but honor, love, and respect, and we are to protect that this would mean we would seek to stomp out gossip and lies that would damage the honor of another. Now, this does not mean that we cover up egregious sin in the church. Too often churches have done that. They try and hide it because they, they want to protect the honor of the. It's better to confess the sin and deal with something egregious like that. So I'm not saying that. But we do seek to stomp out gossip and and, and lies and those type of things. And folks, if you want a competition in church, here's your competition. See who can honor the other the most. Make that your competition. Make it a race to honoring the other person. I'm good with that kind of competition in church. So, love is honoring. Fifth, it's fervent. Do not be slothful in zeal, be fervent in spirit, serve the Lord. Don't be lazy in your love, okay? Every time I hear slothful, I think of whatever that movie was with the sloth in it, What a Zootopia, if anybody's seen Zootopia, and that's the thing moves so… And if you've ever seen a sloth, they, the name is very apt here because they're extremely slow, But don't be be slothful. Don't be lazy in your love, in your service to the Lord. As you serve the body of Christ, you are to spend yourselves with actual enthusiasm. Imagine if this were the case in the church, In, in our church, in any church. I don't think you'd hear people stand up front saying, we need volunteers. If we spent ourselves enthusiastically for the church, served in love, we wouldn't have that issue. Sixth, love is hopeful. Verse 12, rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer. Hope is so so key to the Christian life. Think of what Paul wrote a few chapters earlier in chapter 5. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Folks, hope does not put us to shame. Hope is essential, and hope hope will fuel our patience in the midst of tribulation and trial. It'll fuel our endurance, and hope will fuel your prayers as well. When we have the sure hope that God is working, we can then rest in the refuge that He is for us, and we can love others freely, even in the midst of our own tribulation, and suffering. Seventh, love is caring, verse 13. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. The church is a generous place. It's a generous place. We care for the saints, which means, means we need to be aware of needs as well, not in gossip again, but to love and to serve. And I'm, I'm thankful for the generous nature of this particular church. But my guess is there's other needs out there. Like, you're struggling, you're like, I I could use a couple meals this week or something. Like, let us know so that we can serve. We have deacons who want to do that kind of stuff and and help organize that. That's their, their calling. And then hospitality. Now, hospitality is a bit different today than it was then. Hospitality was shown to visitors and sojourners, and part of that call was because God's people had been strangers and aliens themselves. And today, there's hotels for travelers. You know, when we, we travel somewhere, we don't just go knock on somebody's door and say, can you put us up for the night, please? Though I have experienced that overseas, and it, it is, it's still there. But, and, and now there's, there's shelters for the other needs, and, and we can certainly support shelters, and, and we should, and serve. But I would say we can be hospitable in other ways as well. Because folks, people are more isolated and lonely than you know. We're overly busy people, uh, whether it's truly busy, or busied on devices, or whatever it may be. And most of us live in neighborhoods that are dominated by back porches and privacy fences rather than front porches and screen doors. When I was a kid, growing up, my parents could tell where I was just by, like, you know, around the neighborhood. Like, I couldn't tell that now. I have to use find my iPhone. We're isolated. We need connection. People need connection. And not just our neighbors, but the people sitting in these rows next to you. They need connection just as much. Eighth, then. Love is sympathetic. Verse 15, rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Folks, love cannot be indifferent to what other people are experiencing. It can't. Love will enter in. Love will seek to understand. Love will be there. That doesn't mean love tries to fix everything. Like the first time you go hang out with somebody who's in pain, please don't try and fix it all. Put your arm around them and let them cry, and cry with them. Maybe read a psalm, but just be there. The ministry of presence and sympathy is so beneficial. We all want to fix things, but some of those things, they just need somebody there. So it's sympathetic. It's also harmonious. Verse 16, live in harmony with one another. Philippians 2.2, very similar verse in some way says, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. As believers, we are um, we're to be renewed in our minds, and we are renewed as believers by the same source. The Holy Spirit is is working on us, so we should be more and more in tune with one another as we grow because we're in tune with the Spirit of God. So, as we are properly discipled, and I say properly discipled, so not with Fox News, MSNBC, or CNN, so properly discipled by God's truth, we will and we should grow in harmony in being of the same mind With one another. At least in the compassion and the grace and the love to understand that people can have different levels of of conscience. Scripture talks about the weaker in faith and the strong and all these kinds of… We have to leave room for that, but we can be of the same mind in loving one another in that. So, we live in harmony. And then tenth, do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Now, the connection back to verse 3, I think, is pretty clear of having a, a good estimate of yourself. But this, this has some further specifics. Because to be haughty is to be disdainfully proud and arrogant. I, I would call it aloofness with attitude. You just don't care, and you got an attitude about it. Um, you don't care about anybody else because you know you're better than them, or at least you think you are. And folks, in case you were wondering, God opposes the proud. Okay? Just putting that out there. He opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. He looks to the humble, to those who care for the poor, for the needy, the oppressed, to those who are not afraid to spend time being uncomfortable with those in need. The church cannot be a place where we are more concerned with status and associations than with caring for the needs of others and sharing the love of Christ. Folks, Jesus was accused of spending time with tax collectors and sinners. Do you know why? Because he did. It was a very valid accusation, and he was good with it. Let us be good with that status of being people who associate with whomever, because we know people desperately need the gospel of our Lord and Savior. So just imagine what the Christian community would be like if this is how we lived and loved. Take some time today and think about that and ask yourself, where, where does the Lord need to work on me? Because this is transformative. It's attractive on so many levels, but it's, it's not only within the community of brothers and sisters in Christ that we are called to be different, but in how we live with those who don't profess faith and even those who are quite likely antagonistic to it. and I skipped verse 14 earlier that says, Bless those who persecute you, bless and do not curse them. Folks, our interaction with the world matters. In many ways, it's our witness, it's our visible, very outward witness. And in these verses, there are four negative injunctions. Number one, do not curse your enemy, verse 14. Number two, do not repay evil for evil, verse 17. Number three, never avenge yourselves, verse 19. And number four, do not be overcome by evil, verse 21. And all of these, I believe, are only possible for us as we live by faith in a God who judges justly. That's the only way we can do this. Because if we don't believe that God will work ultimate justice, doggone it, I'm taking vengeance. But we have to believe that, and so we have to live by faith. So, do not curse your enemy. Rather, bless those who persecute you. This goes along with never avenge yourself, because it calls us to leave it to the wrath of God. One one translation says, leave room for God's wrath. Now, I don't believe either of these call us to be ambivalent towards justice. That would absolutely contradict Scripture, to be ambivalent towards justice. But it means to pray for and work for justice, but to trust the Lord in it, to not overstep our bounds to pray for those who come against us to pray that they would bow the knee to Christ folks we are not the ones to exact vengeance that's the lord's work and he will do it justly and he's actually set up read verse chapter 13 governments to do that that's what they're supposed to do I'm not saying they always do it but it's what they're supposed to do and we seek to bless. In verse 20, we read this mostly clear statement of blessing, and then it ends with this, for by so doing you will heap burning coals on his head. That doesn't sound like blessing to me, okay? Maybe that's the picture, you know, I've, you know we've had a fire out. I, I really don't want to heap those coals on somebody's head. So, what in the world are they talking about, well, there's a ton of interpretations possible, but I believe the best in this context is something along these lines, that the coals of fire in that view symbolize the burning pangs of shame and contrition resulting from the unexpected kindness received. The wronged person's magnanimous behavior, returning good for evil, has this effect. So as we don't return evil for evil, but return good for that evil, it, it, it just produces this in the other person like how how does that happen? Like, what what are they doing? And they feel shame over it. So we don't repay evil for evil, but we consider what is honorable as well. In Peter's first letter, he's dealing with persecution and the persecuted church in many ways, and he writes in chapter 2, verse 12, "...keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation." And then down in verse 15, for this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. And all of this, of course, echoes Jesus' teaching, right? Matthew 5, 16. Let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. And then, folks, as far as it is up to us, we are to live with peace, in peace with everyone. That's the life of, Christ, of the Christian, and, and really, that's, that's wise living, James 3:17 But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere, and a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. And again, let's jump back to the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5:9, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. We should do everything. We should strive to be at peace with everyone. Look at Hebrews 12, 14. And in all of this, we overcome evil with good. We are not overcome as we live by faith. We walk in step with the Spirit of God, and we trust. We, we rest. We take refuge in the Lord. Folks, this was a quick overview of this chapter. could have gone in a lot more detail. But I think what it's showing us is that the life of the Christian is a very serious one. We are called to something very serious, but something very beautiful. Imagine a life lived like this. We cannot be people who surrender to our base desires, but we must be transformed by the renewing of our minds in all of life in the community and outside, our fellowship with Christ must inform our interactions with anyone and everyone. And so I know that these are daunting. I know that these can be overwhelming. But as those in Christ, we have hope to live this way. The only one who ever fulfilled all of this is Jesus. We have the, the way of Christ instead of the way of the world because Christ gave Himself instead of us for the ways we've so often broken this. You know, not only did He perfectly live in this way Himself, but He, like I said, He gave Himself for us, but He also gave us His Spirit to empower us, to strengthen us, to transform us more and more into the image of Christ, to mold us not to the image of this world, but to the image of Christ. This is the life of the church that we have to engage in. It's a life lived by mercy, by love, and by faith. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this word. Thank you for how you love us and care for us, your grace in our lives. We pray that you would strengthen us and give us wisdom to live what is daunting, but yet beautiful and glorious and true. So be at work in us, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.